Hello, welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Today's episode will be about sentiment. So sentiment is generally described as a view of or an attitude toward a situation or event, an opinion. The way that I'm interested in sentiment uh, is the way that it's used to drive real world behavior. And I think a good place to start the conversation is with a chart that many people uh, in the investment community would know, and it's pretty well circulated online at this point. It's called uh, the psychology of a market cycle. If you go to wallstreetcheatsheet.com, you could find it. Yeah, this is an interesting chart um, that you showed me, and uh, it basically shows uh, more or less, I guess, what is the fluctuation of marketplace activity um, with the uh, axes being price and time uh, based on, you know, it has kind of like different uh, peaks and valleys, each uh, correlated to different emotional states like euphoria, complacency, et cetera. Yeah. So it basically goes through the way that not only an investor necessarily, but the general sentiment of the greater market as it uh, advances through the business cycle, like as it goes through periods of expansion and recession and the peaks and troughs that are associated with that. So for people who don't, who have never seen this uh, chart before, I'll just describe it a little bit. So at, at the beginning, when the, let's say when the price is very low, generally the, the sentiment of the market would be, would be classified as a feeling of disbelief. And then from there, it goes to hope and optimism. And then all throughout that cycle, the, the price is rising. So this would be uh, the beginning stages of expansion. And then eventually you get to belief, thrill, and euphoria. And euphoria would be the, the peak of the market where, and this is commonly referred to as the time when people think there's like a new paradigm forming. So like uh, you see it in the stock market, like in the dot-com bubble, that would be an example. Or even um, in the cryptocurrency world, there's been uh, many examples of this where like a new technology will come out and investors will all convince themselves like, oh, this is the future. We're going to price this all in. And then it gets, it gets so priced in that it becomes totally unsustainable and overvalued. And then that leads to like a, a repricing and a contraction of the market. And then that goes through complacency, anxiety, denial, panic, capitulation, where people think that they were wrong and sell. And then that's generally towards the bottom of the chart. Um, and then ultimately it culminates in anger, depression, <laughs> and back to disbelief. And then it all starts again. But um, I think the interesting thing about this cycle is that like you could it could still be a new paradigm like there could be new innovations and technologies that are worth investing in and even if they seem overvalued like locally like it, even if they seem overvalued in that moment uh, there could be a repricing event that uh, where people decide to take money out of the market and take profits like that's also part of the natural cycle that doesn't necessarily mean that they're overvalued necessarily in the longer term. So like even on the way up as new technology is uh, adapted and incorporated into like the larger economic environment, there's still repricing events that occur, say, on the way up. Does that make sense? 
So are you basically saying that there are certain enterprises which have kind of managed to rise back up after, you know, crashing down from this, this kind of peak, in other words, that the, they have managed to kind of resume their growth, uh, despite the fact that, that, you know, uh, investors have lost at some point, uh, faith in, in what they're in the, in, in the value of their stock, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the dot-com bubble, I think that's probably the most, uh, the most obvious example where there were companies in the nineties that were valued at tens of billions of dollars that didn't pan out the vast majority of them, but then a lot of them did. And now some of them are worth trillions of dollars. So like, uh, so even though there was, uh, like say a local correction or repricing event along the way where they went through this full psychology of a market cycle. The The point is that the the cycle repeats itself over time. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting when I, when you first showed this chart to me, cause of course, you know, I'm not really um, much into finance. It's never something that I've known very much about. I mostly you're my main source of information for that. So when you showed me this chart, one of the first questions that came up in my mind was, okay, so I kind of understand, let's just put, describe this in terms of the value of stock. So I kind of understand that a stock price isn't exactly based entirely on objectively measurable values like productive capacity or anything like that, or, or profits, uh, that it, it, it can be largely based in, you know, a variety of arbitrary values, but to whatever extent a stock price is based in reality on some level, depending on, you know, what company it is or what is it, it is that they produce is that actual objective reality, the sort of the actual production side of things does that sort of trump this cycle in any way? It seems like that point makes a lot more sense now than it used to. So for example, people like who are thought of as like the legendary investors of decades past, like the, the Warren Buffetts, for example, like they got famous doing uh, like investment uh, research where they would like, it used to be the case that, and, and it, I mean, it's still the case to some degree, but not as much as it used to be where there's like uh, investment research and investment banking is done around analyzing like the actual value of a company, right? And like they used to do that in a way more tangible way than they do it now. So like sort of like an appraisal case, service, basically. Yeah, yeah. And and it used to be the case that they would like measure the price to earnings ratio, and that would be like a way to gauge how much speculation is priced into the stock. So you're saying like I'll pay you, and it, and it used to be sixteen would be like the uh, average PE ratio for like a lot of companies. Um, so like if you were paying, like if the, if the price went super high, then the PE ratio would be really elevated. And then analysts would use that to say, oh, I think the company's overvalued. Like, I mean, so if you think about it on a, like on a local level, it's like, if you wanted to buy, uh, your local grocery store, how much are you going to pay for it? So like in this example, you would pay them 16 years worth of earnings to buy the business. But it's gotten so crazy now, like uh, with specifically with globalization has changed the whole calculation because the market size now is assumed to basically be like 
billions of people as opposed to like just the United States. So like what gets priced into these companies, uh, I mean, what's actually got on now is there's PE ratios that are literally like infinity to, to the point where there is no earnings and the earnings are actually negative, yet these companies are worth trillions of dollars. Okay, so so that sort of confirms like, I mean, what I generally perceive stock value to like how the, I understand that to work, like that doesn't surprise me. But I guess I still don't understand like a company like that, like the one you just described with like some really massive PE ratio. In other words, a company which is very likely not actually worth what they claim to be worth. How is their value incorporated into this kind of sentiment-based curve? And I mean, I can see how obviously the value is in, in large part uh, uh, a, a product of sentiment. You know, we perceive a company to be behaving in a certain way and perhaps we determine its value on that basis. But if what you're talking about is that you know, the, the, the uh, stated value actually has very little to do with the real value. It is very subjective, and they've come up with new ways to try to measure value as a result. Uh, mm -hmm. This is largely a result of tech, like the tech companies that, again, are presumed to be able to reach billions of people. So like investors are then willing to sit out uh, negative years, like year after year in the case of Amazon and Tesla. And they are some of the largest companies now, just for example. But um, one one metric they measure is uh, like active users. I, I know at the company that we used to work at, that was something that they would measure. And that would be like a really important metric that venture capitalists would look at specifically, again, because venture capitalists are investing mostly in companies that aren't profitable. So like it wouldn't make any sense to apply like a PE ratio to a to a startup tech company. Uh, but then another metric would be like uh, time spent in app, you know, like, so there's also, it, and it depends on like what your company is trying to do exactly, like what your product or your service is. But like, there's all ways that they've come up with uh, or, or new, yeah, new ways to measure like the value of things. But ultimately it comes down to like capturing either like capturing physical dollars, like in the case of a PE ratio or capturing attention um, or even capturing like confidence. Like you could even talk about like the US dollar as, or, or cryptocurrencies as things that are really interesting to look at from a sentiment perspective right now. So like as the dollar keeps inflating and they keep printing trillions and trillions of dollars, like our uh, general sentiment about the dollar is becoming like much weaker in relation to something like Bitcoin, for example, I'm I'm not not saying uh, Bitcoin is going to become the predominant world currency because there's a lot of interests that are going to try to prevent that from happening, and a lot that will try to <laughs> that will try to make that happen. But um, but uh, like just just the idea that like having uh, the dollars not backed by gold anymore, like that fundamentally changes the way that we relate to the value of the dollar and like thus right. the sentiment. And would make it therefore much more subject to sentiment. That does make make a lot more sense. I think it goes beyond this. This is just one example. The the market sentiment chart. I think it was an interesting lens, though, to 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 get a look into how 
not only psychology, but like the way that investors feel actually drives price action and drives real world behavior and investment capital. Um, and I, I think I know the company that we used to work at, for people who don't know, we worked at a company that did like real time geopolitical analysis, I guess I would say, like where we analyzed uh, like real time breaking events. Like at the end of the day, it was always like us, like humans actually trying to analyze the events that were going on insofar as like it's real humans doing it. Our analyses are then subject to the way that uh, we perceive and feel about those events and and also like the frame of reference that we have when thinking about them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, both intentionally and unintentionally, I would say. Um, the way that we interpret, you know, information that comes through, you know, affects the way that we choose to act on it. And of course, plays into larger trends. Um, I mean, I think that was also the entire logic behind the service that the, the company we worked for and many others like it provide, you know, that um, they're ultimately uh, uh, doing sentiment analysis in a manner of speaking uh they're just doing it in a, in a very specific way yeah you know i'm just trying to th think back about like how i felt specifically like when i was doing it and like what like specifically what our frame of reference was i guess so like like obviously it would be subject to sort of a temporal constraint where like we're like because it was real time breaking information like we had to be thinking about like what does this mean for the next like five minutes? Right. But then, I mean, there were also other types of analyses where we would do where it would be like more longer dated, like this group of people might want this information because it's relevant to this like longer term project. But um, I think just like sort of the, the way that like the inner sentiment that we have that we're like, uh, like sort of like the, the lens that we use to analyze the world is, different in different circumstances and that affects the way that we look at things i can specifically remember like I, I know like when i think about things i normally think about them like from the perspective of like one and a half or two years out typically and like maybe that's just a function of like where i'm at in my life right now and like that's sort of like what it, it makes sense for say like uh i don't want to say how old i am exactly but it, it might make sense for somebody of a certain age to think uh along the lines of a certain temporal constraint. Yeah, there, there certainly seems to be a very strong correlation there, right? I mean, I think uh, a lot of us intuitively understand the logic, even younger folks understand, probably aren't terribly surprised that older folks uh, tend to look at things in a longer term. And I think they can probably figure out that that's because they have a, a longer perspective to base that on. They have a longer life. You know, that's the same reason that uh, you know, to my five-year-old son, if I ask him to wait five minutes for something, like that doesn't feel like five minutes to him the way it feels to me, because that's a much larger percentage of his total experience. So um, th there's, there's that for sure. Uh, there is also for sure what you said is true that, you know, the, the temporal context in which something takes place, in which something happens to us is so relevant to our perception. Uh, you know, when I was, I mean, at the time that we were working uh, this, this job, especially in the earlier part of it, um, I was at an extremely kind of pivotal 
time in my life. It was when right around the time that my first child was being born and also partly related to that, partly not uh, just a time when I was extremely kind of wound up about all of this new. I mean, I was almost like Alex Jones, the way that I would talk to people at that time in my life. And you better believe that that affected <laughs> the way in which I was going to do a job like this. Now, I'm not going to say that I, you know, uh, intentionally disrupted anything, but clearly the level of enthusiasm that you have uh, over, you, you know, what it is that you're doing is going to affect how you do it. Yeah. And I think an interesting part about that, uh, this was something that I noticed, like, I feel like I became better at conducting analysis. Like when I became aware of the way that I like naturally felt about things. And then like, when you're able to like be mindful of that and then sort of like step outside of that box to like analyze things through a different lens. And I mean, like we sort of had to do that to some degree uh, at the company that we worked for, but like, even if you're just doing like, like I said before, like short-term or long-term analysis, like just putting yourself in those different perspectives, like you're optimizing for, for different things. Right. So then, uh, mm-hmm. that just like completely changes your frame of reference in relation to like what your conclusions are going to be about those things. For example, I know you see like on Twitter or on social media, or even in like mainstream political commentary, people will talk about like, Oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And like, this is inevitable, but like, like, what is your like time frame for that? You know what I mean? Like, so, mm-hmm. so like, you see it often with people who are like pretty say black pilled on the internet, pretty like saying like, Oh, there's no point in this or that or anything. Like it's all gonna, mm-hmm. it's all gonna go this one way or that way in the end. Right. But like, mm-hmm. that's like not, that's just a totally different um, <laughs> frame of reference than say breaking event analysis. Yeah. It's a, it's a frame of reference, which ultimately is, I mean, if you want to relate it to kind of history, it's I've discussed it on here before briefly. It's what you might call the progressive view of history. And it's something which very unfortunately kind of dominates, uh, you know, our education system seems to at least. Uh, but most people seem to have this general sense that uh, history itself is all kind of moving in one direction. You know, that there's like this process. I think a lot of the, uh, the kind of, you know, the the sort of revolutionary history of the post-enlightenment, post-industrial world is put in this context a lot. You know, uh, this idea that things are all sort of progressing towards a a final end of, you know, (laughs) ultimate sort of sort of realization of of all of the best ideas. Um, I I think uh, this is a point of view which is fundamentally detached from reality because it seems to ignore the extent to which uh, individual human will and collective and individual human action, you know, ultimately play the, the, the such a huge role in deciding what does and doesn't happen. That view of the world is all, it's almost like a contrived sentiment. That's sort of how I look at it. Like, it's like something that it's not natural to think that, but nope. it's something that you have to be taught that you then is just like a general feeling 
like that people have. I mean, I'm saying that as somebody who used to, I guess, believe in this to some degree. For sure. I've been there too. And I understand exactly what you mean, because looking back on myself, like, I mean, I have these conversations when I can manage to have a thoughtful conversation with somebody of like a, a pretty, pretty far left point of view, which is rare, but it does happen. Uh, you know, I, I always kind of come to this point where I have to sort of talk about the difference between like this universalist perspective, which I think lends its, I think the progressive view on history is very much like a universalist perspective. You know, it, it's essentially, it's even more than that. Cause it's really sort of like, uh, presuming that the desired end is just inevitable. You know, it's kind of this. The Marx is is very uh, a very good example of like the the you know Marxism uh, is is like a direct application of the progressive view on history. This idea that it's just like there's this stage and then there's this stage and this is just where it's all going. So you know, you're either in this one or you're in this one. And and so I think what I find when I talk to people like that, however they thought thoughtful they are up to that point, like it is that concept of not only the progressive view of history, but just this universalist ideology that sort of applies a certain standard to all things and all people. Um, this is so unbelievably internalized. Um, and at this point in my life, I find it shocking, but as you say, that's, it's, I mean, we've both been there, you know, we both went through the university system. It's difficult to come out of that and not uh, a sort of see things that way. Well, it's interesting now that I think about it, people commonly say that uh, pro- like progressivism takes on the re- like a religious, uh, religious undertones because it's like a belief system. Right. But <clears throat> I think it's actually more related to the idea that it's a sentiment, like that it's a feeling. And like the feeling is more visceral than like just a belief or an idea. Well, I mean, I think there's there's plenty of talk, you know, uh, about the degree to which not just uh, progressive, I would argue that, you know, plenty of people in, on the conservative side of things are guilty of this as well. But, you know, the, the degree to which there is a uh, a lack of cohesion between the sentiment that is expressed in in some of these movements and the actual behavior, either of of the sort of uh, of the the faithful, you know, or the uh, the the leaders. Yeah, I think that's uh, an interesting distinction to make. Like, where it's not specifically social engineering that's designed to manipulate behavior or thoughts specifically, but like it, it's more about influencing the way that you feel about something. Uh, and, and I think that's like a distinct, I guess, I guess it would be like a subset of social engineering. Like it would, it would be one strategy that social engineers would, would use to do something. And I think that that is like extremely prevalent on social media and I guess in regular cable news and I mean, yeah. any, any medium in which you could communicate like a, like a, a message to the mass population. I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, a, a sophisticated social engineer would probably be striving as often as possible to affect things at the level of, of this kind of deep sentiment rather than 
focusing on sort of direct outcomes from, you know, influence X equals action Y. Uh, I mean, I think there's plenty of that too. Uh, but I think, you know, for, for, for the social engineering that I, I would say at least takes place in this very kind of long term and large scale way, uh, I think those people are, are in it for the, they're, they're, the whole concept of social engineering is basically that it's easier to ultimately transform the nature of the human being himself rather than try to direct individual actions here and there. Uh, we, we, this is a, a, a topic that I feel like we get into much more effective detail in, in the episode on education, uh, which I feel like is a really good way to sort of understand what we're sort of alluding to now, which is, you know, this, this uh, way in which sentiment can be sort of it can be controlled essentially as a way of manipulating human behavior, you know, and there are just different ways of doing that. Briefly thinking about it, like imagery, the way that like rhetoric, like these, these would be effective ways to do it. Entertainment, you know, media. I mean, that to me is one of the, one of the most like obvious, like mind blowing examples of just sort of direct, uh, kind of social engineering is the kind of thing that you see just on your average uh, sort of TV show. Yeah, I think at some point we'll have to do a whole episode on social engineering. But like, I guess in this episode, just to relate it specifically to the idea of sentiment, like, mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get at with it is that they, they can use the information itself to manipulate the way that you feel about things. And I guess that like an obvious example of this would be, I don't know how confirmed this is or not. But it's pretty widely talked about how they often use like election polls to to try to influence people to vote or try to dissuade people from voting. Ultimately, the end goal is direct social engineering to drive an outcome. But like the means by which they do it is to actually attack your sentiment, like the way that you feel. So like if you feel that your candidate is ahead by 20 points in the polls, like are you really going to go stand out in the rain to go vote that right. day so like uh, yeah i think i think that's a pretty clear example i think also with airports it's pretty obvious when you're on an airplane and they have the um like those booklets there that with the evacuation plan and everything like <laughs> obviously if the plane falls out of the sky like everybody's gonna die and everybody knows that but it, it like uh it gets at like the way that you feel on the plane like it makes you feel safer like oh there's a plan like there's they've thought about everything like we'll we'll all be okay if the plane goes down you know but like again it's sort of like trying to get specifically at the way that you feel absolutely and i think also you know again touching on uh, social engineering a little bit but i just think it would be wrong not to mention the effect that that same sort of process has uh in generating uh, just a, a natural state of kind of uh, complacency and fear in people. Uh, you know, the the airline and sort of you could just extrapolate it to airline air, airport security and just the whole context of air travel, everything about it is very much characterized by this process of reinforcing the story that there are all of these processes in place to ensure your safety. 
Um, and I think a part of that is not only to, so, so like, again, relating this to the idea of, you know, kind of approaching this from the, the root of the sentiment, not just trying to create a direct effect, you know, it, it not only tells you, okay, I'm safe getting on this nightmarish contraption flying through the air for no particular reason, uh, because this picture, you know, look how calm the lady and the diagram looks, but also the processing, you processing your own disbelief over you sort of like going through the process of suspending disbelief about this entire situation is reinforcing the understanding that you are nothing that you, this is what, you know, what you are for is to do what you're told. It doesn't matter if <laughs> the thing is ridiculous look at everyone else going along with it. This must be what you're supposed to do. So, so for sure that there is that, that kind of aspect to it as well. Well, there's no more clear example of that than the masks uh, in, exactly. <laughs> in current times. I mean, I think my theory with the masks is that it was originally something that was designed to make people feel like they were safe. Like if they just put on the mask, then like the, <laughs> these dumb people would think that they're safe and they could, <laughs> still go to work and they can resume their their normal lives and they won't be like i think it was a way to prevent mass hysteria basically Mm -hmm. Um, but i mean it's obviously gotten to the point of absurdity but i think that's what they were originally going for uh like like with the masks yeah and then of course it turned into at some point again intentionally or otherwise it turned into this uh clear sort of you know I don't even know if I want to call it division at this point because it seems to be the vast majority of people, you know, however begrudgingly, you know, myself included. I mean, I, I my rule now is like they have to make me, you know, like they at least have to have a, a sign that says it's required. But basically, I mean, they have hit me right in the sentiment, you know, and the sentiment is that I just don't want to constantly be in conflict with everyone that I'm dealing with. Uh I'm not sure if that really counts as sentiment. I really just kind of want a little bit of peace and quiet in my life. Uh, but I, I mean, it works. You know, I think maybe a better example, I'm not sure if I ever talked about this, was back in, I guess it was the early spring when I uh, first left Vermont and and like to start traveling around as my construction process started. I went to New York. I was there for the first couple of months of that process. And this was the time when COVID hysteria was at just like peak and I got there silly non New Yorker that I was uh, not, and I was not wearing a mask outdoors because everyone else what, well, that wasn't the reason why I wasn't wearing it. I just, you know, never would have occurred to me in a million years to put on a mask outdoors. Uh, But sure enough, everyone in Manhattan was wearing them And at first I did not put it on and I kind of walked around for a while. And then after about 36 hours of existing in a place where every single person has a mask on outside. And if you don't wear one, every single person is looking straight at you with this like half a face. I mean, I honestly, they didn't force me. I just couldn't take it anymore, you know? I think that there's unanticipated 
negative externalities of that kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's optimistic to say it's unanticipated, but I think that like that's sort of where you get this like othering effect that people talk about, you know, like they're worried that like, oh, if their kids don't get the vaccine and then they have to wear like a mask in the school that they're going to be like effectively othered. But like, again, that's like, it's not like direct behavioral social engineering, right? It's it's like, they're more like targeting the way that you feel about. Things. Yes. They're targeting your need for, for like, you know, your deep psychological need for connection with a community and like acceptance and esteem, you know? Yeah. And I don't think that they fully understand this kind of stuff. Like I'm, I'm obviously there's like a, work in psychology that explores these ideas and some of the more like deep thinkers about social engineering get into this stuff uh, in their books. But like, I don't, I, it just doesn't seem to me like they're operating quite on that level to me. I, I still feel a little bit conspiratorial when I talk about uh, stuff like that. And I'm a little bit hesitant to like go all in that, like, Oh, they're doing this like specifically to demoralize you about, whatever yeah right? like oh, I, I think some sometimes it does happen but i i think a lot of it is just like unanticipated like secondary and tertiary effects that just spiraled out of control from them making a bad decision in the beginning well a hundred percent i mean i think there there's always going to be that uh but i think it just depends on who's they you know in, in other words who is actually like at what level is a sort of uh what you could essentially call a psychological operation i mean that's that's basically what social engineering is uh in military terms it's a psychological operation um you know who's running that and 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 who and at which levels and at how many levels are people ultimately being manipulated um i, I don't know but I do know that there do appear to be an awful lot of processes and just situations in modern society. Uh, again, I could think of any number of reasons why this might be, but situations which lead to this effect of reinforcing just general complacency through uh, kind of, uh, I think brainwashing is like a really good way to describe it. Actually. It's like this idea that you are just bombarding people with nonsense uh, in an attempt to demoralize. It is extremely effective. And just especially coming from a military intelligence background and knowing how effectively this sort of methodology is used and not always effectively. I mean, that, you know, you don't hear very much about like the, all the times that this fails, but the point is there is an understanding of this as a methodology. So of course I'm not suggesting that any time, you know, there's like um, some sort of uh, uh, a system or a mechanism which affects our sentiment in this deep way that it is intentional social engineering. I'm just saying that it, it, it I'm glad that I know the signs to look for, for, for that stuff, because it's, there's a lot of it. Yeah. I think there's different levels to which the operations are going on. Um, and what's disconcerting to me, at least about the present moment is that it seems like, the timeline on some of these has been accelerated or new operations have been deployed specifically with the short time frame where like it's just so overwhelming 
to the average person that they're just like not prepared to be able to like recognize that for what it is. You know, I I think like maybe to people like us, we could recognize it more easily, but like, I think oftentimes we don't quite acknowledge how difficult it actually is for like the average person to be able to pick up on this kind of stuff. It's true. I I feel like I've been trying to be a little bit more understanding about this in recent years and like really making an effort to, you know, appreciate. Um, It's like what we were saying earlier, you know, I wasn't always like at the place where I'm at, you know, in my life. And uh, I didn't always understand the things that I understand. And number one, that makes me realize that I could be wrong now. And it also makes me have at least some kind of patience for people who, you know, haven't gotten there hopefully yet and hopefully one day will yeah it seems to me like normally the the operations that i would say that i observe that like are targeting sentiment i think it's like pretty rare that that goes on like in broader society but uh it seems more that that's like an emergent effect of like more targeted operations even if like say a corporation trying to maximize profit right will have like a natural demoralizing effect on the employees or something right so it would be sort of like like it would be a poor like analysis. An unintended consequence right yeah like it, but it would be a poor analysis to say that like oh the company is specifically trying to demoralize me it's like well not really like they're just trying to maximize as much money like they're trying to just maximize profit and then like your demoralization is like a, a secondary effect of that you know so like i think it could be but i i also think it's important to point out that to the degree that whoever is looking at those spreadsheets can sort of see the connection and i think that they usually can i mean i just have a hard time imagining a world where you know people at that level who are able to kind of understand uh you know data like that uh, I, I have a hard time imagining a world where they just don't really understand the effects of, of their actions. And so if you're wh- whatever, you know, let's take your example of like the, 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 the corporation that's, you know, engaged in some kind of a, a project, uh, you know, and that has a, a negative impact on its employees. I mean, to whatever extent that's true, like the people doing that, they see it and they, they know that they, you know, could do things differently, but they don't. Yeah. And there's competitors to the company that we used to work at would actually do like social media sentiment analysis. They were, that's literally like the sector that they would classify their business within. Um, And what they would do basically is come up with baskets of keywords that would be correlated to uh, different sentiments. Like they would say like, this is positive. This is negative. This is induces envy. Like, a range of different uh, feelings and then they would use that as sort of like they would be able to sell that analysis then to bigger corporations that were either like trying to launch a product or trying to make their audience or users feel a specific way about their brand um so but i think it was really like social media that opened up targeted social engineering on the like level the mass of, scale like yeah like, like like on the in well not even on the mass scale but just like on the individual like psychological scale like i don't think they've been able to quite get to that level as effectively or as easily as they are now i mean like i'm sure there's examples in history like 
I feel like television was was like kind of huge in this regard. I don't know how well. I don't know if I would argue that it was more impactful than social media. A big part of social media, by the way, and what really I think accelerated that whole process was uh, the physical invention of the smartphone. You know that that integrating of social media into basically this little handheld thing that people carry around everywhere that really kind of changed and accelerated all of that. So with all this stuff, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it to, to one thing or another. At a high level, whether it's a company or a government entity or organization, they're very aware of the importance of sentiment analysis, I think like specifically. So on YouTube, I just saw like today or yesterday that on the White House YouTube channel, right? They used they would like upload the videos of the White House press conferences, right? And you know how on YouTube you could like give a thumbs up, like it, or like a thumbs down, like disapprove or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. So like because they were getting so many downvotes or like thumbs uh-huh. down on their videos, they just uh-huh. disabled the feature. So like that's like <laughs> specifically a way for them to prevent the masses from sharing the feeling that like we don't approve of this you know like right. that that we're right. like downvoting it or whatever and and i mean twitter and facebook does the same thing that's what they're doing when they like prohibit links from being shared or like when they put like a warning on a link the whole point of that is to get at you on a psychological level a hundred percent it's not just that they are suppressing the sentiment from being portrayed they are also reminding Every again, intentionally or otherwise, they are reminding all of the users by default that ah, 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 I know you wanted, I know you thought that you got to vote on this, but you didn't vote right. So no more for you. Personally, I think it's more again, I think it's more of an emergent effect. Like I don't doubt that there's I don't doubt that there's work being done at these companies that supports those decisions but like it's just very easy to imagine how say for example they decide for one reason or another that they want to stop a specific link from being shared they want to like cut down on that idea right so then like it would make sense that like oh if we remove the share button or if we remove the comment button that engagement will drop by 20 percent, you know and then like the it's pretty easy to imagine how from enacting that decision that you get this larger demoralization. Does oh, for sure. Sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess I'm just like, to me, I don't really feel like the, the conspiratorial part of this even takes place at the level of the company anymore. It's probably like, you know, the shareholders from various, uh, you know, j- just kind of coordinating with uh, executives to the, the whatever to the extent that is necessary and just, just sort of uh, making these things happen. Like, I don't, I don't think that they're sitting around at YouTube planning this. I think that like there are levers that can be pulled in either direction that affect what happens at YouTube in ways that even pretty high level executives don't even entirely understand because they themselves are also in a compartmentalized system. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's it's interesting to think about the emergent effects of like sentiment analysis, right? So like just thinking now, like it's become 
I used to think that this stuff was like totally crazy. The occult, uh, Satanism stuff. Like it just all seemed like yeah. totally crazy to me, but like <laughs> they really are making a concerted effort to put that stuff in popular culture now. And like the question about that, that I would have is like, is somebody intentionally doing that? Is that just like an emergent effect or like what is actually going on with that? So with that stuff, I mean, I have like when I first found out about that stuff, I saw so many examples of it, like all at once that I was like completely all in on the idea that there's a massive like, you know, just overtly satanic conspiracy. And by the way, I'm not entirely convinced that that's not true, but I'm I, I also like since then, I feel like the more I've thought about it, the more I realize kind of how easily this can really just be like, (laughs) how do I put this? In other words, it's, it's not the, the highest level of the conspiracy. It's like, maybe it's just like the, the, the sort of ritual that is put out there for like a kind of mid-level manager type you know, the type of person who would go to Bohemian Grove and dress up in hoods and worship an owl when really it's just an excuse for them to have sex with a bunch of other men. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like it's very likely that all that stuff could just act as like this just 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 sort of cultural mechanism, but that these people are being you know, who are actually carrying out these actions that they don't necessarily believe in any of that stuff. That could be it. But it could also be that there is a certain kind of deeply metaphorical level at which all of that stuff is true. And I don't really have very much insight into that at all. But I feel like the more you start to analyze terms like, I don't know, angel or demon or whatever, or God, uh, you, you start to realize that like, due to their subjectivity, they're very difficult to define. And the same way that you can't say what it is, you can't say what it isn't. So, you know, maybe on that level, if you can kind of correlate, like I think of it in terms of correlating events in the real world uh, to kind of metaphysical energies or intentions. So if you can kind of imagine a world, and this is sort of what the occult perspective on reality is, as far as I understand it. By the way, for those of you who are interested in this subject matter, I would recommend uh, checking out Mark Passio, P-A-S-S-I-O. He's a a really interesting speaker. and, And I do think you need to take kind of that stuff with a huge grain of salt, but it's very interesting. Um, But anyway, the occult sort of perspective on reality is that like metaphysical reality is exactly what it sounds like according to the roots of that word. It's like meta, you know, it's more than physical. It's at a higher level. And the things that happen up there affect the things that happen down here and to some extent vice versa. So if you can kind of imagine all of these like cultural concepts like angels and demons and whatever as manifestations of that idea you could see it that way i think your analysis of bohemian grove and 
I think that applies to other, let's say, rings as well. I think that's correct. Like, I think it's mostly like a LARP, like a live action role play yeah. where they, I think the, I think it's kind of like a frat thing, honestly. Like, that's sort of how I think of it. Like, I think they organize this to put people there in like a compromising or humiliating situation. And then the fact that they all know each other was there and have something on each other that they're sort of bound by that, by the knowledge of that. Right. Like, so yep. then nobody's going to turn on anybody else or then they could be exposed. Uh, I mean, it's basically just about blackmail or extortion or something like just on a larger scale. But I think that's uh, what the Epstein thing was also. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure those aren't the only two, you know, like I'm, it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if this sort of stuff goes on at the, uh, at the boards of various corporations or NGOs or any formal group. Right. I mean, at any level where people can pay to have things done that you and I can't really pay to have done, you know, uh, I, I think it's just generally foolish to assume that people with a certain amount of power would not do everything that they could do to achieve whatever ends they were trying to achieve. We can, more or less only speculate as to what exactly those are, uh, and, and, you know, unless they very explicitly tell us, as many of these folks have. But yeah, I guess bringing it back to like the idea of sentiment, I think if the occult and satanic stuff sort of, it's related to the same way that we talked about progressivism, right? Sort of this ethereal concept or feeling that like you have. So like, it might be the case that they just like, well, we feel like, everything is kind of going in this general direction, say like of some sort of degeneracy <laughs> one way or another. So then like, let's just start using the logical endpoint of that in cultural imagery or something. I think that could be some element of it. I don't know. Like, again, I think it, this is probably all going on on like multiple levels. Like it's obviously not, well, I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, but I guess I, I would guess that it's probably not all coordinated from the top down, like and controlled in like one tightly controlled uh like mechanism right i bet there's a yeah. bunch of different ways in which it comes out i bet there's people who record like rap music videos or something who don't know anything about any of this but they just like think it's like artsy or something right so exactly then, like, they just like throw it in exactly and and of course it doesn't hurt anybody from the perspective of a social engineer to have a society where everybody's uh in debt up to their eyeballs and is extremely you know, dependent in the short term on whatever they're doing to make a living. Very often, you know, that's a big part of how uh, speech in general is is controlled in the public sphere. In conclusion, I guess it's interesting to think about sentiment and the way that we feel about things uh, and our attitudes towards external situations and events insofar as they drive real world behavior. And if we could be aware of that and also be aware that it's something that could be accessed externally, that we can come up with a better analysis and understanding of what's going on around us.